All right. So it says, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we come to you in prayer, uh, thanking you for this time. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that we can come to your word and see a clear picture of you, of your character, of your command, of your calling on our lives. Um, God, that we can see um, God, the glorious mysteries that we find there of, of your existence and uh, Christ's incarnation, God, of his sacrifice in our place. Um, God, the, the incredible and beautiful and mysterious truths that we find in your word. We ask that as we open your word, as we talk tonight about the Lord's Supper, uh, that you would use your word to shape your people. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your work uh, that you do in our midst. Uh, we thank you for the churches of Blount County. Um, who this day have have shared your word and preached the gospel. God, we ask that you would use that, um, that you would use your word going out to to stir up people's hearts, um, to to convict people of sin, to make them recognize their great need of a savior, um, and that you would draw people to yourself and that they would be saved. God, that you would use this and that you would blow the fan the the spark um, of of faith that is in Blunt County and that you would blow it into a fire that it would spark um, a, a revival, uh, that we would see that in our own midst, in our own church, in our own community, you know, that we would see it across our state and across our country and across the world. Uh, God, we have, uh, maybe in the West, certainly in the United States, God, we have, we have waited, we have longed um, for, for you to move in the ways that we read about in history. Um, God, we ask that you would do that again. We ask that you would awaken your people uh, and awaken our, our, our world. Uh, we thank you. God, we praise you for this time. Uh, we thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So like I was saying, man, it's been an interesting week. And so part of it was 
at the beginning of the week, I thought, you know, with, with, with Katie being gone, I want to be next door this coming Sunday. So I want to be across there to kind of help this transition and just be over there and see things going. And, and cause people are going to be in new places and stuff like that. So I asked Cody Barnhart, um, who many of you know, I said, Hey, Cody, could, could you by chance preach for me this week on Sunday night? He said, yeah, I think I could do that. I said, man, it's even on the Lord's Supper. That's a great. It's a fun passage to get into. And so you'll have a, you, you'll have a good time getting into that. And he said, that'll be great. So then the whole week I've been working on other things, trying to get things organized over there. And I didn't write a sermon because um, I didn't have to, because, you know, Cody was going to preach for me. And then yesterday about three o'clock, Cody calls me up and says, Hey, Ash, I'm sick. I'm running a fever. I can't be there tomorrow. And I was like, cool. Um, that's okay. So went into sort of overdrive. Wasn't exactly sure what was going to happen. Still doing some cleanup next door. And so went and, uh, and uh, we had this big rolling screen thing. It's this big, long thing that sat over there in the corner. It was in the way. So I was like, I'm going to go get that thing, put it in the truck, take it back out to uh, to the mother church. Put it in my truck. Thought, well, I'll run an errand to Target real quick. So I just went over to Target and, and went inside and got something, came back out. Came back out. Truck won't start. Uh, so it's dead. And, I'm, and I couldn't get it start. We tried jumping it off. It's because it's a piece of junk. So don't feel worried or whatever. It's not something new. It's always been a piece of junk. Um, and so it does this sometimes. It'll probably be fine in a day or two. It just had to sit in salt for a few, you know, days. Um, but anyway, it was one of those days where it just kept on coming, right? Like you just kept on going, Lord, I'm not sure what you're doing this week. Um, but, but stop <laughs> was, was, um, was the deal. Uh, but, but here's the thing, man, I'll tell you what. So obviously not having been able to prepare. Um, and, and so I had to, I had to do what preachers have to do occasionally. I had to just go back to an old sermon. And so I preached on the Lord's Supper before, and that was the passage we were on. So I went back and, 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 and pulled out an older sermon that I had actually preached out of the gospel of Mark, but the, the passage, certainly the second half is very similar to it, but here's the deal. Uh, you might say, well, cool, we're just getting a recycled sermon then, Ash. That's what's going on. We're just getting this old sermon that, that you're putting out here. But here's what I would like to think. As I read through the sermon, I thought, you know what? I mean, that's a message that we need to hear tonight. Um, that's a good message. And so, you know what? Maybe Cody got, maybe it was God getting Cody sick. That's what the deal was, is that was the whole thing going on. Um, and, and that God said, no, I don't need Cody to preach tonight. I need you to preach something else. Um, and so, and if I had all week to prepare for it, I'd have probably done something completely different, but, and maybe I'll get through this and you'll go, well, no, that, that wasn't it either. Ash. I'm not sure what's going on. So we'll just have to see. Um, but so, so as I, as I'm talking, I'm probably going to be talking a little more in generalities about, um, the Lord's Supper and the different accounts of the Lord's Supper that we see in the scriptures. And so I won't be just as, as sticking as closely to the text and Luke that I normally would be. I, tr- I try to not preach out of another book, even if it's got similar passage or whatever, but tonight we're going to do that. So, so what I want to talk about is the Lord's Supper. Um, and, and sort of a picture of the Lord's Supper as we understand it being about, there's a symbolic aspect to the Lord's Supper. There's an aspect of remembrance and there's an aspect of examining our own hearts. Okay. And so here's a sentence and you can put all these, these things together. Um, so it is the Lord's Supper is a symbol and a sacrament of Christ's sacrifice and provision and a reminder of his second coming that calls us to examine our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Okay? Kind of a long, and we'll kind of hit some points in there. It's a symbol and a sacrament of Christ's sacrifice and provision 
and a reminder of his second coming that calls us to examine ourselves, our relationships with God, and our relationships with each other, okay? So um, you may or may not be aware of this if you're if you're a, a fan or student of church history that the Lord's Supper was one of the most contentious issues during the Protestant Reformation. All right. So when it came to the Catholic Church and the Protestants, there were more contentious issues. OK, we had lots of things that we were discussing with them, like the five solas type kind of things that were more uh, concerned. But when the Protestants got together. The Lord's Supper was the thing that divided them. Um, there are several famous instances and councils and, and groups that would get together on trying to organize, trying to agree and work together, and they could agree on everything. And then they would get down to the Lord's Supper, and they couldn't agree on it, and they would go their separate ways, okay? And so it doesn't seem like that a lot of times for us. It doesn't seem like that should be the the, the breaking issue, but it was for the Reformers. So in, in a very general sense, painting with broad strokes, um, the three great fathers of the Reformation represent the three general views of the Lord's Supper. And those would be Luther and Calvin, and then the guy who's known as the third man of the Reformation, Ulrich Zwingli, which is a way better name than Luther and Calvin. So if you want to name your kids three cool names, have a Luther, have a Calvin, and then a Zwingli. Um, but the view, um, that I hold when it comes to these things, and again, there's, there's nuance between all those. The Anglicans would probably come in and say, now hold on a minute. Uh, you know, and they would have a little bit of, of a, of a nuanced view, but, but the view that I hold sits somewhere between the Zwinglian and the Reformed view or the Calvinistic view. Okay. Um, Zwingli tended to emphasize the symbolic nature of the Lord's Supper. Right. That it was a symbol of it represented something else. Whereas Calvin wanted to emphasize more the imparting ability or power of spiritual blessing and nourishment to to the people who receive the supper. Um, that there is an outward physical action, but there is also an inward spiritual something taking place as well. Um, neither of those two men would say that it was salvific. Right. No, neither of those two men would say that by taking the Lord's Supper, you are saved. It is not imparting saving grace to you. Uh, Zwingli would say it's probably not imparting grace to you in particular at all. It's a symbolic thing. Calvin is saying, no, there is a grace, but it's a it's a nourishing blessing, um, not salvation. That's, that's being and I'm somewhere in between those. I'm probably lean. I lean towards the reformed Calvinistic view, but, but also holding with the Zwingli view. So anyway, so what we might say is this. So if we're, if, if we're taking it from those two stances, what does it symbolize? If it's a symbol, what does it symbolize? And what does it impart to us? All right. Well, the first thing, obviously, is it symbolizes Christ's sacrifice. The Lord's Supper symbolizes Christ's sacrifice. This is the most obvious thrust of the Lord's Supper. We see that in Jesus' own words, right? This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. They haven't, they don't even know about the sacrifice yet, but Jesus has prophesied about it. He's told them that it is coming. And so Jesus is saying, this supper that I'm instituting is going to be symbolic. It's going to remind you of the fact that I have given my life and body and blood to save you. Because the reality is, Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Can't get much more blatant than that. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The Bible is very clear that our sins must be paid for 
They can't just be looked over. They can't just be forgiven in the sense where we say, hey, no harm, no foul, and move on. It's not the way it works. Our sins must be paid for, and they must be paid for with blood. There's no getting around that truth. But instead of my body having to be broken, your blood having to be shed, Jesus has shed his blood and his body has been broken in my place, in your place, in our place. As Isaiah tells us, he is pierced for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. So in the supper, we remember Christ's sacrifice and we thank Christ for what he has done. We are, we thank him for just as, as Peter tells us that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So again, we learned that Jesus suffered once and that all my sins, if I am in Christ and all your sins, if you are in Christ, were paid for on the cross. Those sins yesterday, the sins that you committed today, the sins that you will commit in the future, they have all been paid for by Jesus' death on the cross. I am no longer judged on the basis of my own works, my own sin, my own merit, because I didn't have any in the first place. I was bankrupt of merit from the get-go. I am judged by the merit of Jesus Christ and of his blood. So that's what it symbolizes. We don't need to reenact Christ's sacrifice. We don't need to reapply Christ's sacrifice. Jesus certainly doesn't have to be re-crucified in any way. It is finished. My sin has been paid for at the cross. And now we receive that salvation and we remember it. Okay, that is the symbolism of what is going on there. But there's other symbolisms too. And there's an impartation that comes along with another symbolism, and that is Christ's provision for us. Not only his sacrifice, but his provision for us. So think about this. Why bread and wine? Why do you think God chose those as the two symbols of the Lord's Supper? Because I can think of other things that would, would, would be better symbols of sacrifice and suffering. For example, the cross itself, okay? The, the symbol of the cross is a symbol of sacrifice and suffering. And so it's a much better, if you're just looking for a symbol that you can put and identify and it draws your attention to something. When I see the cross, I think of Christ crucified. When I see bread and wine, I think of not that, right? So why bread and wine? Well, because again, there's more to it than just the symbolism of his Sacrifice. There's the symbolism of his provision and the impartation of his provision. Man does not live by bread alone. In fact, true life can only be known through a relationship with Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is life. He came that we might have life and have life more abundantly, the Bible says. That is to say, maybe you don't just need food inside of you. You can't live on food alone. You can't keep healthy on 
food alone. You need Jesus. You need to feed on Jesus. And just as we can ingest food and we can ingest drinks and the nutrients are processed and distributed to every cell in our body, so even Christ is taken into our lives. He works in us and through us. And he works himself into every dark corner and every unknown recess of our hearts and thoughts and emotions and lives. And he nourishes and he cleanses and he feeds and he strengthens. John chapter 6, the gospel of John chapter 6 has this huge passage that, that shines light on all of these things. He says, I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. This is Jesus talking. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for this life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourself. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the man of your father's ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Man, it's a rich, dense passage, but it's exactly the concept that we're talking about. Christ is imparting blessing to us and life and nourishment to us in the Lord's Supper. So we know that there is a, as we eat it, there is an outward symbol that is, is common, um, that these are these elements that are everyday elements, and yet something is happening deeper than that. Both symbolically, both symbolizing something, and actually spiritually imparting these things to us. Jesus is the bread of life, the true vine. We recognize that in those elements, ultimately, it's not food, it's not drink, it's not wealth, it's not security, it's not prosperity, it's not accomplishments, it's not comfort. None of those things will, just, will sustain you. You'll, if you seek after those things, you will seek your entire life and die unfulfilled. It is Life is nourished by Christ and only Christ. There's an interesting thought. And this is just something I'm going to, this is a free one, right? A nickel, you don't even have to pay this, okay? Um, it's not explicitly in scripture. And so it may be the case that uh, it, 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 it doesn't, it's not actually legitimate, but there's, there's an interesting thing here, I think. Notice that both bread and wine are things that have to be cultivated. They're things that have to be produced in some way. And yet they also arise from processes that we didn't con- create and really ultimately have no control over also. So if you think about it, what if instead of wine, it was water, water was the, what was at the table. So we would look at water and we would say, man, we don't make water. We just get water. Water exists. It is there. It is part of creation and we receive it. That's it. Okay. And that would say something. If the element at the table was water instead of wine, we would say, cool, that tells us something about what's going on here. 
But maybe there's something interesting about the fact that in the supper, wine and bread have to be made by people. They don't just appear. And yet, were it not for fermentation and the cycle of yeast and all these things like that, right, things that we don't control and and could not create ourselves, it would also not take place. And so I think there's a picture in that, too, is that God's provision in our lives is beyond our ability to manufacture. And yet, it requires our diligence. It requires our participation in these things, okay? Um, We have to make the wine and the bread, and yet we couldn't ever make wine and bread on our own. Maybe that's in there. Maybe it's not. It's just an idea. But this is what the elements represent. And Jesus' own words point us to the fact that they are symbolic and imparting, but they point us to something else. They point us to remember a truth that honestly should animate everything that we do. It's a point that we've talked about recently and and we'll talk about again, and that is the second coming of Christ. We just finished talking about this back in, in December as we were going through our Advent series. But the Lord's Supper reminds us of his second coming. Luke says it specifically in verse 16. For what, Jesus, what does Jesus say? I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So as he's eating that supper for the last time, he says, I won't do this with you. I won't share this meal. I won't share it with you ever again until we are in the kingdom of God, until all things are fulfilled. Jesus reminds us that there's going to be a time for the disciples when he's not going to be physically present to share a meal of fellowship and celebration with his people. There's going to be a gap there. There's going to be a while where he's not going to be able to celebrate with us in those ways. But he also reminds us that things won't stay that way, that a day is coming when he will return and he will set all things to right. And Jesus will gather his bride, his body, his church to himself, and we will celebrate at the banquet feast of the lamb. There on the front of your, of your bulletin. Scriptural meditation at the beginning from Revelation chapter 19. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We have a wedding banquet that we are going to join Christ at one day. And he is going to once again share in the fruit of the vine and and the grain of the field that is made bread. We will share that again with him one day. And as the song goes, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We will share in that wedding feast for eternity with God. Are you contemplating and rejoicing in these truths when you come to the Lord's Supper table? Are you thinking of of the endless joy that awaits you because of the promise that Jesus made even at the institution of the Lord's Supper? 
Or are you just thinking to yourself, man, I'm, I sure hope I don't like spill this cup when I pull it out of here. Okay. If you are, I feel you. That happens all the time, right? I mean, our, our trays are weird. They do weird things. Every once in a while, those cups just get stuck and you're like, it won't come out of there. Every once in a while, somebody will squeeze too hard. It'll bust and it splatters. It's happened a couple of times. That's not the main focus though, right? That's not what we're supposed to be thinking about. We're supposed to be thinking about who Christ is and what he's done and the fact that we will be with him in eternity one day. These truths should cause us to praise, right? They should cause us to have thanksgiving overflowing in our hearts. They should also, though, sober us. It's not only a moment for jubilant celebration. It's also a moment to sober us. Because as we recognize what Christ has done and what Christ will do, again, Paul tells us in specific relationship to the supper, he says, hey, in this time you need to examine yourselves. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 11, which is actually where the, the, the piece of our service that I read before the Lord's Supper, it comes from 1 Corinthians 11 as well. But, but Paul says this, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. All right? Man, that is a crazy passage. Okay, the things that it says are not normal things that we think about the Lord's Supper. When you were at a normal church on a normal Sunday going up to take the Lord's Supper, nobody's thinking, I better be careful because this might kill me. That's what it says, though. Nobody thinks that way about the Lord's Supper, though. They don't think, if I do this in an unworthy way, am I going to get sick? Is the Lord going to bring discipline on me because of the way I've done this? That's not usually what we're thinking, and yet that's what Paul warns us about. It's a moment for us to examine our relationship with God because sin has no place in the Christian life. In fact, it is antithetical to everything that God has called us to, everything that we believe, everything that we hold true, and yet we can all attest to the fact that sin remains. We walk in it every single day. It is a daily struggle. Sometimes it seems like it's not just a struggle, but that we are losing to it, that we are having to fall back in defeat to our sin. Now, again, Paul encourages us. The Lord's Supper is a unique opportunity to focus where we ask ourselves, man, what are the glaring inconsistencies in my walk with Christ? Why have I not confessed these things? Why have I not surrendered this stuff to the Lord? Or why do I keep on falling prey to the same sins over and over again? The Lord's Supper is a moment to do that. It is a reminder of what it's cost Jesus for you to be standing there. And it's a moment for us to say, now, how am I going to honor Christ with my life? Now, again, at this point, occasionally, you have people who 
um, their consciences are too tender at this point. And they say, you know what, I, I've got too much sin to overcome and there's no way that Christ could ever love me and there's no way that I could ever be forgiven because the things I've done are just too bad and I feel too unworthy to take the Lord's Supper. I have a, have a dear friend um, who, who struggles with a lot of those kind of uh, a doubt and emotional issues or whatever. And he went through an era of his life where he would come and say to me, he'd say, I, I couldn't take the Lord's Supper this, this Sunday. I couldn't do it. Well, why not, man? Because I just couldn't, I, my, I've got too much sin in my life. I've just got too much stuff. And, and, and the truth was, if I were to say honestly to him, I'd say, man, you were, your problems are way smaller than anybody I know, right? Um, you were living way more faithfully than every, anybody I know, but he just was one of those guys that had a tender conscience, conscience towards these things. And so he always felt unworthy to take the supper. And so on one side, you'd go, well, you're right. You are unworthy to take the supper in and of yourself, but Christ in his perfect life and his sacrificial death has made you worthy. You don't have to worry about the fact that you're not worthy to come to the table. Christ is worthy to come to the table and he has covered you with his righteousness. And so that guilt that you feel is a blessing as long as it leads you to repentance and trust in God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a simple promise, but one that so often those people with that tender conscience forget. Once we have confessed and repented of our sin, that guilt is no longer needed. That guilt should draw you to the cross. It should draw you to Jesus Christ. But once you have laid those things down, it is a hindrance. Christ commands us to lay it down and enjoy the fellowship and the blessing that he has imparted to us because of his righteousness. And that line there in that Corinthians passage, I'll read it again, verse 31, because you don't have it in front of you probably, where he says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. It's talking about the idea that, man, again, God will not allow sin in his children any more than a parent would allow disobedience in their child. And he is giving us an opportunity to judge ourselves rightly, to look at our lives and confess and own up to the things that we have. He gives us an opportunity to obey peacefully and gently. But we know probably many of us are these people and some of us are stubborn and we need to learn things the hard way. We won't just turn in and of ourselves. And so, mark my words, if you are in Christ, you will learn. He will teach you. Because what else would he do for his children? He's not going to abandon you. He is going to lovingly discipline you. And that will be unpleasant, to say the least. But again, it doesn't have to be that way. If we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Why not just repent? Why not just say, I'm an idiot. You're right, God. I'm wrong. And obey before God metaphorically has to take his belt off. I don't want to be disciplined. I just want to experience his presence. And the Lord's Supper is a moment to do that. To just say, just clear the air. Okay, that's why we have that time of confession before we go to the Lord's Supper. It's a moment for us to just clear the air with God to say, man, here's the ways that I've fallen short, God. I acknowledge those things. I'm wrong. You're right. I trust in you and your mercy and forgiveness.
Incidentally, this is one, and this is sort of another side thing. This is one of the main reasons that we don't permit unbelieving kids, little kids, to take the Lord's Supper. This idea of self-examination. All right. There are different traditions in, in the Christian faith that allow children to partake of the Lord's Supper. Um, I went to an Eastern Orthodox service. It was actually a Russian Eastern Orthodox service one time. And not only did uh, kids participate in the service, babies participated in the service. People would take their infants, you know, um, six months old and take them up to the priest. And the priest would spoon feed them uh, the wine and the bread that had been made into like a mash. And he'd feed them, spoon feed the babies um, because their attitude is that if the family is in Christ, then even the children can partake of the Lord's Supper. But I feel like this passage of scripture speaks against that because what's happening is that child is unable to evaluate, right? He's unable to, um, to look and, and, and consider the things of his own heart. And that's a scary thing. I, I don't want to put my child in a situation where they are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Some people, again, might say, well, you're overdoing it. You know, you're, you're thinking too much into it. That's my conviction. So that's part of the reason why we do what's called, we fence the table just a little bit. We say, hey, listen, uh, this is for professing followers of Jesus Christ. It's not for kids who are unbelievers, even if their parents are believers. It's not for unbelievers, right? Um, this is for those who are in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so, again, 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us that the Lord's Supper is a blessing, but it is also dangerous in a sense. And that those who come to it um, in an improper way, there are consequences for that. And so we examine our relationship with God. But here's the last thing, and we'll close on this, is it's a moment for us to examine our relationship with each other. Many churches read their covenant before they take the Lord's Supper. Okay, that's a that's an interesting practice. Okay, and and it and it and it zooms, it focuses our attention in a specific way. It says, "Hey, if we as a body of believers, if we as brothers and sisters in Christ are going to come and sit down to a table together, then we need to remember what we've promised each other." Now, that's not the way our liturgy works, but it is something that we should remember and emphasize. We should consider and examine ourselves concerning our relationship with other believers. I think Paul alludes to that idea again in the book of 1 Corinthians, except in chapter 10 this time, when he's talking about idolatry in the church. He says this, he's addressing whether or not it's okay for a Christian to take part in pagan religious ceremonies. That's basically what the idea is, right? So for example, if you're living in the first century church and you're hanging out in Athens or wherever, and you got a friend, he's been your buddy your whole life, and he's a Zeus worshiper. And he says, hey man, they're having the big Zeus festival down at, at the at the city square. You want to come down? It's a good time. Everybody eats. It's like a you know Fourth of July thing. Um, and we're just going to eat and barbecue and, and whatever. And then you're like, well, sure, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. He says, obviously, the food that we're eating has been sacrificed to to the gods, to Zeus. Um, and that's the issue Paul is addressing. Because um, on one side, we would look at it and say, well, we know there's not even such a thing as Zeus. right? What difference does it make if we sacrifice some meat to a non-existent entity? 
Seems like it wouldn't be that big a deal. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 14. He says, therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking to, uh, I'm speaking as to wise people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And he says this. He compares it to the Lord's Supper. He says the cup of, sorry, I missed my, my line. He says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We are one, we who are many are one body. For all of us share that one bread. Okay, so he makes this illustration. The longer illustration is the idea to say this, is that you shouldn't associate yourselves with um, these things because when we take the Lord's Supper, we are uniting together just as there is one loaf. We are uniting together as one body. And Paul is basically saying the same thing at those pagan festivals. He's saying, listen, when you share in that food, it is a symbol of your unity with those people. But the problem is you're not unified to those people, right? Those people are Zeus worshipers or whatever. You're not one of them. But when you share in the Lord's Supper, you sharing in that common loaf demonstrates the fact that you are one loaf. You are one people united together. And that's what Paul's getting at. The same is true in the Lord's Supper. It connects us. We share heart and mindset and focus with our brothers and sisters as we do it. Here's a cool idea. That ceremony, if you want to call it that, that ordinance, that institution, that whatever, is something that unites you with every single believer through the whole history of the church. Like, is that not crazy? That people have been doing that for 2,000 years, and you're one of them. People from every tribe and race and tongue all across the world have been sharing in the bread that represents the body of Jesus Christ and the wine that represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And you're a part of that. And you are united with those people, not just of other ethnicities and and uh, languages all over the world, but you are united with people who have been dead for hundreds and thousands of years. Because the Lord's Supper is a unique thing that unites us. It's a communal, corporate, shared experience. We connect ourselves to Christ historically. Uh, we connect ourselves to the church through time. That's another reason why I like singing old songs, right? Like I like when what's the when we sing uh, "Be Thou My Vision," you know, and those songs that are these Celtic songs that have been sung for for thirteen hundred years. I like that idea because it connects me to believers who have long since passed. The Lord's Supper does that too. And so in light of this union, and the question is, are we living in peace and unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or is there anger? Is there discord? Is there even malice? And is it time to fix that? Is it time to do something about that instead of just letting another day go by where that distance is between us, where we are not unified? Jesus is not specifically talking about the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 5. 
But I think the advice rings true for the Lord's Supper as well. He says this in Matthew 5. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Again, that's not about the Lord's Supper, but man, maybe it should be. Right? Maybe it's something that we should say when it's a moment that we can come to the Lord's Supper, we can say, is there something that I need to do or something I need to say to somebody before I go through with this? I've been a part of a couple of cool Lord's Supper services in which something like that specifically happened, where somebody in the congregation went, before I go forward and receive the supper, I need to go over here and talk to Bob. And I need to say a couple of things to him first before I have this, because I don't want to go down there and receive the supper in an unworthy manner. Perhaps in light of the unity and love that we have in Christ that is represented in that single loaf of bread, maybe it's not God that we need to say we're sorry to. Maybe it's our brother or sister in Christ. Maybe it's your neighbor. And so that's the last piece. Um, again, kind of going back to where we started um, at the beginning. It's a sacramental symbol. That's a scary word, too, for Baptists. Man, we don't like that word sacramental. It sounds just a little too Catholic or Lutheran or something. It's further, closer that way, okay? And we say, no, 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 we've, we've moved on from that language, okay? But again, I think most of the Reformers were okay with that language, Um you, can, you, you have to define the term, but, but, but we can still use it. It is a symbolic sacrament of Christ's sacrifice and provision, a reminder of his second coming, and a calling to examine our lives with God and our relationship with others. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to the Lord in time of prayer and ask God that he would do that in our heart that we would re be reminded of these things every single week. It's one of the reasons I love doing the Lord's Supper every week because it is a, it, it does so much work. Okay, it's a weird way of saying it. The Lord's Supper does so much work. Okay, it reminds us of the gospel. It reminds us of our relationship with Christ. It calls us to repentance. It calls us to community. It calls us to faith. Um, it it builds in us thankfulness for the ways that God is working in us. Man, there's so much stuff that I can mess up in a sermon or not get to in a sermon, and you can walk out of here having never heard that. But man, if, you've, if you'll share in the Lord's Supper and remember what it means, then a whole lot of stuff happens. All right? So let's go to the Lord's Prayer. I mean, let's go to the Lord in prayer and, and ask him... Um, that he would use the Lord's Supper each week for these very things, that he would encourage us, convict us, and, and unify us as he draws us to himself. Father God, we, when we look to uh, the Lord's Supper, when we look to 
this this um, incredible, beautiful, symbolic sacrament. God, is it, it is incredible how you have packed so much into something so simple that doing something that people do every single day in every part of the world, um, sipping wine, eating bread, that God, you could turn those simple everyday things into symbols and sacraments that are packed full of, of meaning and blessing and teaching and grace. So God, we thank you for that. Um, we ask that you would help us in our hearts to, um, to receive the supper rightly each and every week. Um, as we, as we, God, share with each other, um, as we examine our own lives, God, and as we interact with each other, um, as your people, God bless us, um, work in us, call us, um, to greater Christ-likeness. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
see you. Um, hope you have a great week. Um, let me let me kind of give you a little direction as you're walking out, parents. Um, so if you've got a zero to two, and you're going to go to the normal door. Um, if you are, if you have a, a, a three and up, you're going to go to the parking lot door, um, and you're going to pick them up over there. If you've got both, then you'll need to go to both. Okay, so don't cut through the middle and because we're trying to keep everybody kind of cordoned off and not get people moving around and, and confused. So um, so you can pick up either one you want to first, but but you just have to go to both doors. Cool. Um, there will probably be some more kind of adjustments and, and changes. We're going to kind of try to tweak a few things with with the children's space and and the children's time over there in the next um, couple of weeks as as Aaron. Um, Lane, who is, she's going to be our interim, um, children's director. And so she's been serving over there already as sort of the assistant for, for, she's actually been here longer than Katie had been here. And so she's going to, she's going to sort of step into that role, um, for, for the time being. And, uh, and then we'll kind of start making some decisions as we go from there. Um, but good to see you. Glad you're here. Um, hope you have a great week. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.